0: Really excited to introduce you to a man who's made a difference in the legal world. His name is Gerald Schwarzbach. He's represented people from all walks of life, from celebrities to those who cannot afford an attorney. And he often has put his own life on hold to advocate for his clients. Good morning, Jerry. Hi,
2: Francie. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Oh, my Um, pleasure. You you came to mind... Well, actually, you've come to mind several times because I wanted... You to be on the show regarding your representation of Ronald of uh, uh, Mr. Blake and um, never came, or never got to do it. And then you then you authored this book called Leaning on the Ark. A Personal History of Criminal Defense, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is great. So I got your book, and it's such a great book. And so I I just wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, what you've done over the last 45 years, (laughs) and uh, kind of get your viewpoints on things that happen in the criminal defense world.
2: Well, that's fine with me.
0: Okay, so, you know, what was interesting to me, Jerry, that uh, in the beginning of your book, you talk about becoming an accidental lawyer. How did how did that happen?
2: Well, I grew up in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania, and I was born in the city of Wilkes-Barre, lived in a small community called Kingston, which was across the Susquehanna River. My life, uh, my early life was really dominated by sports. My father had been a um, Professional boxer, semi pro football and baseball player, and uh, even though he was quite short, he was uh, quite a competitor. And so sports dominated our lives. I I played uh, basketball and baseball in high school and college. Um, But uh, when I graduated college, I, I, I I attended Washington Jefferson College, which is in the other end of the state near Pittsburgh. And uh, that was the time of the Vietnam War, and that was a war that I did not believe in. It was a war I was unwilling to fight, and um, I, I chose going to graduate school as a means by which to get a deferment, which you could in those days. And uh, law school was almost by accident, and when I first, uh, when I began law school, I, I really didn't like it. Um, I studied very hard, actually, from September all the way to Thanksgiving vacation my first semester <laughs> and uh but it just seemed to me that uh, I, I had the impression uh, mistakenly so that that law uh is always about trying to make the rich richer mm-hmm. and uh I was going to quit, um, but I had stopped studying, and I ended up uh not doing well in a particular course my second semester and being very competitive and as immature then as i am now i said i'm going back and i'm going I'm to do well and then i'm going to quit i'd actually been offered a uh, high school basketball coaching job hmm. and um, when i went back for my second year that's when my life changed I, I. Uh, was involved in a clinical law program in Washington, D.C. I attended George Washington University Law School. In this clinical law program, I, for the first time, had the opportunity to really see what it was like to be poor in America and to be a person of color in America. Uh, Where I grew up, there were very few people of color. Um, In college, because of discrimination that existed in those days, um, I went to a small school, um, all male. If you didn't belong to a fraternity, you had no social life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, people of color and, uh, and uh, Jews, I'm Jewish, um, were excluded from virtually all of the fraternities. So I ended up having the opportunity, one of the benefits of that discrimination was I had the opportunity to live with some African-American fellows. And that was a great experience, but... but in Washington, it was very different. I was in the public housing projects of Washington, D.C., representing oh. residents there in small claims court. And that's when I began to see that law could be a vehicle by which I could do something meaningful with my life, that I could... I could there, were, there were a lot of folks out there who need lawyers to fight for them. And... Uh, and that's when the flash, you know, the light bulb went off and, and my life changed.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. What that that's uh, it's really heartwarming, Jerry, really heartwarming. I didn't know that. That's uh, so where did, well,
2: where did it's you somewhat do- ironic in, in, in the sense that um, although I've been in several cases, I've, I've never sought out publicity, um, but I've been in. Uh, a number of cases that have received a fair amount of media attention. The one that's received probably the, uh, the most media attention, certainly in the in the uh, uh, since the day of the internet, is my representation of the actor Robert Blake in his murder trial in Los, An- Los Angeles. Right. So most folks think about of me as being this high-priced lawyer, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Re- who only represents rich people and celebrities, which I don't. I spent uh, over you know, 25 to 30 years representing poor people, rep- representing people um, who couldn't afford a lawyer. Oftentimes I represent people for free. Sometimes I represent people for virtually nothing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that's really what, and, and my motivation as a lawyer today, and my motivation in writing the book is the same motivation I had when I when the light bulb went on back in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, you know, I was going to read this at a later point, but that that brings a point that uh, in your book where you said, um, this is about the Robert Blake case. It's no secret at this point in this book that getting... In gear for trial is my life's work. I know how to do it, and I've done it many times before, the Robert Blake case. But on a personal level, in this case, I was utterly miserable. Mostly I was lonely. In the year of my life I lived in <clears throat> Los Angeles, I saw my wife maybe a dozen times, and you go on to talk about your children, and then say, I was, I was homesick. And I, I think that's the part of <coughs> law... That happens when you have a an intense case, not necessarily just a, ce- a celebrity case, but an intense case where the stakes are really high, where a lawyer's literally put their t- their life aside to well, advocate.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have uh, my attitude has always been and still is that um, every case is equally important to me. Um, Different cases may have more importance to people uh, from the outside, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, and certainly if someone's charged with murder, the the potential consequences are much more serious than if they're charged with a petty theft, but for me, the commitment to the client is the same, whether it's a misdemeanor or it's a murder. Uh, It's an enormous responsibility, Uh, at least I, I take it as such. Uh, to have uh, another person's freedom or life in in part dependent upon what I do or don't do and how well I do it um, I can I can it although it's very difficult I'm real critical of myself it's very difficult for me if I make a mistake and there's uh, am I client um suffers in some fashion because I made a mistake. That would be very difficult for me, but I could work through that emotionally. What I couldn't work through is that I didn't work hard enough.
3: Hmm. That I
2: didn't do enough for the client. Because um you know I'm human, so I so I'm capable like everybody else of making mistakes. But um you know i- as I said, I come from a small town, I have small town values. you know if you work, you work hard, if you give your word, you keep it, and if you're going to do a job, you do a good job and and for me the the greatest challenge um has been to be the best lawyer I could possibly be while simultaneously being the best husband and father <laughs> I could be and now grandfather
3: oh wow congratulations um, but
2: it's but that's uh It is extremely difficult. Um, I've paid a a heavy price, personally and financially, um, for the career that I've had, but my wife has paid a huge price for it. My family has paid a huge price for it. And um, they've been extremely supportive and -hmm. believed in what I was doing. But it's... uh, it, 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 it can be extremely difficult, it can be enormously rewarding when you help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I, I wrote Leaning on the ark was because I believe that most people in this country do not understand how the criminal justice system works, and they don't understand um, its flaws, its potential strengths. And I wanted to educate Folks about that and Mm -hmm. the critical role that criminal defense lawyers play in that system, Uh, because criminal defense lawyers are generally viewed very unfavorably, and they get a bad rap. And I wanted to try to educate folks about who who we are and what is the motivation to become a criminal defense lawyer. And. and my, my greatest criticism of the, of the criminal justice system is its tendency to objectify human beings. And when you objectify a human being, it's, you know, it's much easier to throw out trash than it is to incarcerate or execute a human being. Right. According yeah. to the National Registry of Exonerations, there have been over, well over 1,700 people who have been wrongfully convicted and exonerated since the 1970s, 156 of them off of death row. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lord knows how many people were wrongfully convicted and never exonerated.
3: That's
0: right.
2: Um, And and Lord knows how many people have been executed and were wrongly convicted. And, And oftentimes, so we need to ask our question... How does that happen? Why does it happen? And what can we do about it? I try to answer that, those questions in Leaning on the ark, um, and, and I try to make the point that we're, we're very quick as a society to write people off, because particularly if you don't see them as a human being.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so we fail to see the potential for human redemption because sometimes terrible acts are actually committed by good people, but they did a terrible thing. And sometimes a person may be, quote, terrible at a particular time in life, but that doesn't mean they have to stay that way. That doesn't mean that they don't have the potential to be redeemed and rehabilitated. And, and so in Leaning on the Ark, I, I tell stories, true stories, of, of incidents of clients of mine who, who have come a long way. And, uh, and that's a very, very rewarding
0: thing. Absolutely. And, and so you, you brought up the Robert Blake case. What, what was your most difficult challenge on that case to overcome?
2: Um, well, I mean, the first thing is, I mean, you, you know, you've been involved in the criminal justice system as well, and, and, um, and you're aware that most people, you know, <laughs> most folks will ask you, well, when's the trial start? And when they meet, when, when they ask that question, they generally mean, when's the opening statement? Mm-hmm. Or when is the evidence going to begin? And what they don't think about is jury selection. True. Because it doesn't matter what the evidence is or the law is if, uh, if the jury's not willing to fo- follow it. And and the stark reality is that many prospective jurors are very biased. And many prospective jurors don't tell the truth during jury selection. Um, and so jury selection is extraordinarily important in every case. In Robert's case... We had written questionnaires because it was such a high-profile case, mm-hmm. um, and it was a and and from those questionnaires, we determined that there was, it was something like seventy-five percent of the prospective jurors thought he was guilty, uh, and that was before the trial. Okay, right. <laughs> I jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, a, a writer came in to write a piece about me for a magazine about a year or two ago. And she comes into my office and she's telling me
1: what an amazing
2: job I did for Robert Blake. And so I finally said to her, I asked her, I said, well, well uh, how much do you know about the evidence in Robert's case? And she said, well, nothing other than he was guilty. Uh-huh. That's after he's even been convicted.
3: <laughs> oh, <my laughs> I mean, goodness. acquitted.
2: He's been acquitted. And, 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 you know, and I believe that I proved scientifically that he was innocent. I believe he, I, I not only raised a reasonable doubt, I believe that we conclusively proved his innocence. Mm-hmm. So jury selection was an enormous challenge. But we, we had a very good judge, um, and she was a former prosecutor. Um, she gave us a very fair trial, and she treated me very well, professionally and personally. Um, once getting past that hurdle, then we, we getting a, um, what we thought was a, a fair jury and an intelligent jury, Uh, there was a massive amount of uh, of evidence. And because the, from my perspective, this was the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office and the Los Angeles Police Department, in my view, viewed Robert's case as an opportunity to make up for the public perception that they had bungled the O.J. Simpson case. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: They wanted Robert's scalp. And they wanted to be. They wanted to redeem themselves through Roberts. And in my view, they didn't care what the truth was,
3: huh. and
2: they didn't follow standard procedures. They suppressed evidence, um, but there was an enormous amount of evidence. And when, and I wasn't the first lawyer in the case. And when I got in the case, um, I determined there was a great deal. The very first thing I did is have I. I significantly changed the defense team and brought in folks who I could trust personally and professionally. Um, But one of the very first things I had done was have an inventory conducted of what we physically had in terms of police reports, lab reports, audio, video recordings, et cetera, photographs, and compare it to letters from the district attorney saying what they were providing in discovery Mm -hmm. and what we determined was that there was an enormous amount missing. And that's in, in, in large part why I decided to, I, had, I had to move down to Los Angeles and be there for what turned out to be over a year. Um, so getting all of that evidence uh, together making sure we had everything and then, um, and then fighting through still the public perception um, that Robert was guilty, and um, what was was a big challenge, but uh, you know uh, you know i didn 't do it by myself, and no lawyer ever does do it by him or herself. Yeah. Uh, there were a number of people who worked very hard and did very good work and the- um, and also, I think you know the prosecution um, aside from um, I believe, uh, violating their ethical obligations. Um, I think they made a, a critical mistake. Uh, they, Robert had been in custody for 11 months before I was in the case. Um, and then after his preliminary hearing, uh, he was released on, a, on bail, but with an ankle monitor around him.
3: Hmm.
2: And uh, when he was in jail... Barbara Walters gained access to the jail to do an hour or a, a very lengthy interview with him. And he was very frail, and he was in jail garb. Um, the prosecutor played a part of that interview, which you know aired nationally. Mm-hmm. And she played a part of it because she thought that it helped her in some fashion. Well... The law in California is that if one side puts in part of a communication, the other side has a right to put in the balance in order for the first part to be put in context.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that allowed me to play virtually the entire interview. Um, and it was very dramatic. It was on a big screen, and Robert was able to proclaim his innocence and do so very convincingly. And it, it, it meant that although I had all along expected to put him on the stand to testify, there was no reason to do it.
0: Exactly, because he was able to testify through that interview. He testified, right. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, you meant... Go back and talk about the discovery for a minute. So, um, people that don't get involved in criminal defense might wonder how you knew there were missing items.
2: Well, what would happen is that... um, when the prosecution would provide whatever they were providing, whether were police reports, recordings, photographs, reports of lab reports, et cetera, they would send a letter detailing what they're providing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So simply we took those letters, all of those letters, and went down that list and compared it to what was physically uh, available. And, and the file was enormous. I mean, it, it filled up Uh, three rooms in a house. Oh, my goodness. And so it was very tedious. And uh, um, so that's we just did that comparison and realized uh, and then made a list of what we were supposed to have that we didn't have. And um, I wasn't assigning fault to anybody. I I don't know who was responsible for the disparity between what was in the letters and what was in the file when I got there, but uh, it didn't matter to me. It, I, I simply had to get everything. And although the judge had set a trial date, she said in stone, and the very first day I appeared as Robert's lawyer, she had already set the trial date um, and said, and I told her it's in my calendar. And she, but then when I went, I went back and I moved for a postponement of the trial after we determined how much was missing, and uh, I actually told her that, because uh, I had talked to lawyers down in Los Angeles where I had not practiced, and they all said, oh, with her, you better you better ask for twice as much time as you need because she's going to cut you in half. Hmm. And I told her that's when I had been advised. Oh, really? <laughs> I did. And she smiled. <laughs> and um, uh, and she, she said something to the effect of, well, they must have appeared in front of me. Um, but I said, Judge, you know, I haven't lied to you, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is the, this is what I need. This is the amount of time I need. And she gave it to me. Hmm. Um, I mean, there were a number of things that happened. I mean, I had my apartment down there was burglarized. My computer that had the whole defense file was stolen. Um, it was a huge. that wow. It was a, a huge deal down there, and obviously, it was a. Uh, for a period of time, uh, it caused a disruption of the trial and for a period of time was extremely upsetting um, because I didn't know who had the computer, who had access to our confidential information, etc. Uh, how am I going to be able to go prepare and go through a trial without this? So there were, there were a number of challenges. But I was lonely. I was lonely. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't know many people down there. I spent a lot of time alone. Working seven days a week.
0: And what happened to your computer? Did you ever get it back?
2: What? Oh yeah. Well, it's a. I lived in a, a three-story apartment in uh, Sherman Oaks, and uh, which is a town near, near Van Nuys, where the courtroom was and where Robert was temporarily residing. And um, apparently, um, some drug dealer had sold some kind of drugs, to someone who lived in apartment uh, 202 and um, told his, <laughs> his friends who were 18 or 19 years old, who were burglars, this woman's got some really you know, hot stuff that you can fence. So these guys got into the apartment building, pushed the wrong button in the elevator, got off at the third floor, Mm-hmm. They broke into apartment three hundred two, uh, which was an old lady's apartment. Fortunately, she wasn't there. She had nothing of any value. It was like your grandmother's apartment. But, mm-hmm. You know, nothing electronic really, other than a, a small TV that was next in the kitchen, next to a book that cooking kosher.
3: <laughs> so they
2: they were pretty upset, and they came apparently they came out. And they just broke into the, the apartment next door, which was mine. And it was bad luck for them because if they hadn't, hadn't been mine, they never would have been caught. But what happened is um, it, it actually occurred during the daytime when we were in court on the day we finally picked the jury. And I came back from court. And when I got up to the third floor and got up to my apartment, I saw that the door was ajar, and I went in, and I saw obviously someone had broken in, and I saw the apartment. The, the uh, computer was stolen. So I immediately called the judge on an emergency number, told her, no, I called the police first. And they mm-hmm. said, well, it might be a day or two before we get out there. So I mm-hmm. called the judge, I tell her, and I said, th- I don't know what I can do. I don't know what to do. I was fighting to try to maintain my composure. She said, well, have you called the prosecutor? I said, not yet. She said, call her. I called the prosecutor, and she said, what's your number? Or what's your address? So I told her. She said, they'll be there in 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, they started coming. And they kept coming. They began, they they arrived somewhere between 2 and 3 in the afternoon. They yellow-taped the entire apartment building. They blocked off our street. They wouldn't let anyone leave their apartments with, uh, without a police escort uh, <laughs> oh in, or, in or out because the prosecutor and the police believed that Robert Blake was responsible for the burglary because he was trying to get a delay of the trial.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: Which was completely untrue. But they, they ended up having, um, uh, yeah, goodness knows how many police officers were there. Um, there, there were at least a few dozen um, and you know they really thought they were gonna they were gonna nail Robert and 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 even the the prosecutor even towards the end of our trial after they had arrested these fellows and they were and her office was prosecuting them and because the, they got their fingerprints they got they got a fingerprint of um. door jam and um, and then they found that they had a whole stash of things they had they had stolen in other burglaries um, and they're being prosecuted and. Um, and she made a statement uh, at one point on, on the record that, that, you know, she accused me of something. I don't remember the details of it. And I just, I was trying to maintain my composure. And I said, well, Judge, all I can say is that this comes from the same, uh, the same lawyer who thought my client was responsible for the break-in of my apartment. <laughs> and, and, I, and she said, say that on the record. <laughs> and I, and I, she said, I still believe that. I said, That's crazy. And she said, say that on the record. I said, I just did. Uh, you know. <laughs> and, and I mean, that was, so it was, they really wanted Robert. They, yeah. want, they really sure. wanted him.
0: Amazing. I, I can't, I just can't even comprehend finding a computer stolen. I mean, that, I, yeah, I just, that is beyond anything that is even comprehensible
2: yeah fortunately, they got it back because these fellows confessed, and one guy gave up his buddy and then they they confessed, and uh, they had taken it to a pawn shop um, and uh, we got it back. It had to be uh, scientifically tested to make sh- see whether or not anyone had accessed it um, um, and, and and no one had
0: hmm. uh, so Jerry how real, how much did um Roberts Persona on TV the beretta character, the smart street smart undercover cop, how much did that impact the case? Did it at all
2: well that was uh, I, if it no i don 't think so i mean I, no? I, I think that case was decided solely on the evidence. I mean we were so careful in jury selection um, huh. to try to weed out things that was you know his image as beretta would be. Helpful, frankly, because he—that character was a very friendly, um, effective police mm-hmm. officer. Mm-hmm. What would be more disturbing was him playing Perry Smith in the movie *In Cold Blood*. True, um, yeah. And so, um, but but I don't think any of that, any of that uh, affected the trial. But that was only because we had a judge who was. Uh, willing to let us have a very thorough jury selection process
0: I can't even imagine that you were able to get a an objective jury that's uh, astonishing considering all the press that case had
2: well uh, I, I didn't do it alone uh, certainly and uh, we had a superb jury consultant uh, assisting us and um, uh, lois heaney and uh, mm and we you know, and we worked very hard that we it was a team you know i was the i was the chief counsel and the only one at council table but but uh you know it was a, it was really a team small team small team of very dedicated people
0: let's let's go to another case if you don't mind um i'm because I'm kind of interested, since we live kind of in, in the general geographical area, uh, the case when, where you represented Stephen Bingham. And yes. the reason I'm interested in that, of course, it was a different, completely different time. Um, and Stephen Bingham was uh, involved in uh, a defendant by the name of George Jackson. You might want to explain that case just a little bit.
2: Um, yes. Yeah, so well, people may recall uh, the name of Angela Davis, uh, mm-hmm. who was a uh, African American woman and a professor, a college professor, I believe, at the time at UCLA. Um, but she was charged uh, in uh, with conspiracy and murder resulting from an incident that occurred at San Quentin prison. Well, actually, it no, occurred at the Marin County Superior Court, which is near San Quentin prison. Um, uh, it, what had, what occurred was an, in, an inmate from the prison was on trial in court and uh, had subpoenaed certain other inmates and as witnesses and so they were they were there in a holding cell. Um, George Jackson was a Black Panther. He was a leader of the mm-hmm. uh, African American uh, prison inmate movement, uh, challenging prison conditions. Um, he was a, a person that law enforcement really despised. Um, and the country was very polarized. And these are the days of J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO when the FBI was infiltrating all kinds of organizations and even instigating uh, illegal conduct, including murders. Um, anyway, uh, at the time of that trial, George had a younger brother, Jonathan, who I believe, if I'm correct, was... Maybe 18, 19 years old. Uh, Jonathan smuggled a gun into the courtroom, and during the trial, he took over the courtroom, freed the, those inmates. He had other guns. Uh, they took the judge, some jurors, uh, prosecutor hostage. Uh, but s- the word got back to San Quentin what had happened. San Quentin sent over a marksman, and they had a, you know, they had a certain policy. They weren't going to let them leave. And as they Jonathan was driving his van away from the, uh, the courthouse. Uh, the guards fired on the van. Um, the judge was killed. The um, prosecutor was uh, uh, shot and paralyzed. Jonathan was killed. Uh, the other inmates, uh, all but one, was killed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that was in August of 1970. Um, Jonathan's intention was to trade the hostages for his older brother George's freedom. So a year later, in August 1971, Stephen, uh, Stephen Bingham, who was a young lawyer, he comes from a, a very respected Connecticut family. He attended Yale then went to, went to law school at Berkeley. But it's a family that's always had a tradition of public service. Uh, his uncle, who was a congressman, senator... His grandfather is Hiram Bingham, who is so-called discovered Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. His father was had, had been a judge. Anyway, Stephen worked in the civil rights movement in the South. He worked with Cesar Chavez out here. Uh, he was involved in a uh, in a lawsuit about prison conditions. And without it would take your whole show to, to to try to tell the story of why he got he was at the prison that day. But he hadn't intended to be. He was there to try to help someone else get in to visit George. Uh, but the short of it is that uh, Steve ended up seeing George, and uh, some period of time, a short period of time after he left, there was a horrible incident inside the prison. Uh, it was a, in which uh, guards were killed. Other guards' throats were slashed. Uh, two white trustees' uh, inmates were killed, George Jackson was shot and killed uh, in the back, uh, allegedly while he was running to a wall, uh, prison wall. And uh, Steve was accused of uh, smuggling a gun and wig into into George, mm-hmm. and uh, he disappeared. He ended up being charged with the six inmates, um, and, who became known as the San Quentin Six. Steve was ushered out of the country with the help of the the left, the political left, and lived away um, out of the country for 14 years before he came back to surrender and go to trial. He came back in 1984, Um, so I guess it was, I believe it was, yeah, 84. And then I again, I was not his first lawyer, but I became his, eventually became his chief trial. Council in 1985, and the case was tried January to June of 1986, and Stephen was acquitted. And it was, uh, and it was really a case where um, the values of the 60s were on trial, and Steve had become a symbol mm-hmm. of those values. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so it was a very important case. And if there had been the internet and social media in those days, it would have been received as much attention, I think, is O.J. Simpson's case or Robert Blake's case. Right. And and his acquittal was the headline National News, when he eventually was acquitted.
0: So what brings to mind, Jerry, is I, I know you live in that county, the county where San Quentin resides, where the case was uh, prosecuted, and how do you deal with that? I mean, you in such a high-profile, emotionally charged case where everybody in the world is against you. How does that work? I mean, can, well, can I you actually, even go to the grocery uh, my, store? My
2: wife, my wife and, and son and I were living in San Francisco when I got in the case, and my office was in San Francisco even through the trial. Uh, we moved to uh, Marin County um, in 1985, um, not because of the case, but um, you know, Francie, I, I just uh, you know I have different yes, personalities. When I'm when I'm functioning as a lawyer, I get extremely focused, um, uh-huh. like a laser. Uh, you know, I'm not the easiest person to be around. I could be physically present with my wife, but not mentally present, mm. uh, which one of the ways in which it, you know was very difficult for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just block out. There's something that happens. There's some kind of switch that gets flipped, and I just... And it happened in, in Blake. It happens in every... I just block out. I only allow myself to think about the things that are relevant to the trial. If it's media, I only have an interest in it as I might think it, it might affect the trial. I don't uh-huh. talk to the media. I, I never. I don't talk to the media unless the prosecution's doing it. Um, I don't play to the media. And one of the challenges in Robert Blake's case was there were so many people down in Los Angeles who wanted to get a piece of it. They wanted the media attention. They wanted, you know, my, when I went down to Los Angeles, my goal was obviously to get Robert acquitted. But I also had goals of being the same person and the same lawyer at the end that I was at the beginning, to not, become, to not get sucked into all the publicity. Um, you know, to be the same kid from Kingston, Pennsylvania, mm. um, with the same values, uh, to not give up my principles, um, and, uh, and to not do anything um, as Robert's lawyer that did not have as its sole objective his acquittal. So I just I blocked things out.
0: Interesting, and and how does how do these kind of cases spill over to your family?
2: Well, do as they, I say, it's it's. Uh, I mean, in leaning on the ark, I uh, you know, I tell a story early on of I was trying um, a capital murder case, actually the Keenan case that you're familiar with.
0: Can and you hold uh, on that one, Jerry? Let's hold course. on that one. We need to take a break real quick, but um, uh, well, I want to talk about the Keenan case. That's fascinating. Sure. We'll be right back. Attorney Gerald Schwartzwak has joined us today to talk about his life as a lawyer and some of his amazing cases. We were just talking; about, you just started to talk about uh, the Keenan case, so let's uh, get into that because that's really uh, has had some application to the kind of work I do. Okay.
2: Well, yes. You, you, you had, Francie, I think you had asked me about. Um, uh, about the price my my family would pay, or how difficult it was, and I tell the story in leaning on the arc of uh, when I was in trial in Maurice Keenan's case in San Francisco, and I came home one night and I thought I had made a mistake uh, that day, and I was very upset with myself. I was very exhausted. I was, you know, working very long hours, and it was a, they were seeking death. The stakes were extremely high. And I walked into our home, which was in San Francisco. It was an old Victorian and had a long hallway from the front door to the kitchen. And I came through the front door, and my then 2-year-old son comes running down the hallway toward me with his arms out. And then I'm just in, you know, my heart's pounding. I'm saying, oh, my goodness, this is what it's all about. This is is wonderful. And then when he reached me, rather than hug me, he put his hands out and said, go away.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I realized then, um, how much stress, level of stress I was bringing into our home. Um, And ironically, he, many years later, went to law school and actually practiced law with me for six years until he came to his senses and now is the managing editor of a legal publishing company. But it's, but that. That was a dramatic demonstration of the kind of stress that I would bring in uh, to to the family. I just would become really focused and I just as much as I love my wife and love my son, there were just times when um, i wasn't there i mean I could be physically there, but i just i wasn't there and that's very difficult and and uh because i because money was never a priority for me you know we've um, uh, there have been a lot of sacrifices and and even now uh it's a, you know my wife and I are in what I refer to as the golden years and and things you know I hadn't really planned for it, I hadn't responsibly financially mm-hmm. planned for it mm-hmm. so um you know there there are challenges, but in terms of the most important things in life um uh we're very, very fortunate. And you know, and I feel like I've had a very rewarding career, and and the decision I made in law school was the correct decision. At least I believe that I that I did something valuable with my life.
0: Well, and clearly, it was the right decision for a lot of people that you've had an impact on their lives. And I, and you know, Jerry, what's so important about this is this is a side of the the lawyering that people don't see. They don't see. That you put your whole soul into a case when you're in the middle of it, and that you're working day and night, and that and that everything you're doing has to do with that case, and there isn't any, there isn't an outside world.
2: Yeah, and but you know, the fact of the matter is, you need to. It's important to try to get away from it uh, when you can, because um, you know you can only. Human body and psyche is only capable of so much, and then it can begin to break down. I've been treated for exhaustion multiple times. I once mm-hmm. passed out in a courtroom. Um, right. So you really have to, you know. It, it, I'm sure people with a di- different disposition than than me have been able to be a, as at least as dedicated or more dedicated than I have been. And and not quite pay the the price that I've paid because uh, they they have a uh, uh, they they have, I don't know they have a better um, sense of themselves and they're able to keep things in prior you know keep priorities in in mind.
0: Yeah, well, what was the Keenan case about? What was the uh, well? The it, basis was a, for the um, it
2: was a it was a murder case uh, in which um, Maurice Keenan um, shot and killed someone while Maurice was very high on methamphetamines, um, and uh, and he uh, I won't go into all of the facts, but they were seeking death, and it was a case I was court appointed, and they were paying very little money. Um, and there was, again, I wasn't his first lawyer. There's a whole long story with that. But then, um, and when they, when I did get appointed, they gave me very little time to to prepare. And, uh, I, I asked for among many things, um, the appointment of another lawyer to help me, which they, the court denied. And, uh, the short of the story is we, we took it up lost at the court of appeals, but then in a, um, seminal case the california supreme court ruled that there's a in capital cases in california based on the california constitution there's a presumptive right to two lawyers in a capital case Mm -hmm. and that's been the law in california for many years now and i like to think that that has helped uh, save the lives of uh, of a number of people and perhaps cause prosecutors not to seek death in in other cases
0: well, and for our listeners, I, let me just say that I can't even imagine a, what, what a Keenan counsel, what, what you accomplished is that um, you got the California Supreme Court to authorize two attorneys, which meant which Keenan counsel typically means the attorney that was representing the client on the penalty phase of a capital case. At least that's been my experience. That's what it yes. means
2: yeah yeah no it, it it's pretty much it's it's pretty much automatic in any capital case
0: yeah, and uh, so i can't even a, a, I, I can't even comprehend doing a capital case with one attorney. It's a capital mm-hmm. case, just to begin with, mm-hmm. is overwhelming. There's so many rules and procedures that you have to follow in a capital case that are different than a regular murder mm-hmm. case.
2: Uh, there are, and you have to prepare not only for a guilt phase, but if in fact uh, a person's found guilty and their Dean's quote, special circumstances, you then have a, a penalty phase trial, which is a whole other trial. Which is, um, although the the facts of the of the murder are are a part of it, but they've already been litigated. Um, you have to you have to have, as you well know, have investigated your client's entire life and mm-hmm. and be able to find witnesses um, who can testify to various things that are relevant to uh, why um, he shouldn't be put to death, he or she shouldn't be put to death. Um, in, in one case I, I write about Leaning on the Ark, I actually had a client who was a terrific singer sing on the witness stand uh, because that was the only way in which I thought the jury was going to see that the soulfulness and the goodness that actually lie at the core of that person, and um, unfortunately, it uh, uh, we were able to save his
3: life. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's you know it, again, it it goes back to um, being able to humanize an individual, other than making that person an objective that can be thrown away in the trash.
2: Yes, and and, and just trying to run, run out of time, but very, uh, you know, quickly allude to what, you know, the case that I um, that, you know, it was that case where, where the fellow was saying there was a co-defendant who, the case was five years old when I got in it because there were all kinds of problems and, and one of the co-defendants had gone to trial been convicted, was lost his appeals, was doing life without possibility of parole, he had absolutely nothing to do with the murder and mm-hmm. I ended up I ended up uh, representing him for free for a number of years, lost throughout the state system, eventually uh, was successful in getting a, a judge to, um, to exonerate him, but he spent almost 19 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Um, and when I first met him, he was a racist and anti-Semite who had mm-hmm. a huge tattoo on his forearm when I first met him. And years later, uh, months before he actually was exonerated, he sent me a letter in which he, he wrote that I had taught him to see people for who they are, not what they were. And when he got out, he got, had every racist and anti-Semitic tattoo removed from his body, did it without anesthesia because he thought he deserved to experience the pain
3: oh in that
2: kind of person. And so there is the potential for redemption, but you don't know whether it's possible unless you try. And you're not going to try if you view a human being as an inanimate
0: object. Hmm. And where did that come from? Did that where that must have been part of your upbringing? Or oh did you yeah. Have... I
2: mean, I you know I say I'm a small town, small town guy, and I you know I am Jewish, and 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 if you're Jewish, uh, certain, uh you know you I you're a part of a group of people who have been discriminated against, uh, for thousands of years. And so at least for me, there was the natural tendency to identify with, um, with people who are oppressed and to, uh, at least for me, uh, and also I think athletics helped play a role in the values my family, my parents instilled in me. Um, I, at least consciously, um, I just when I meet somebody, I just I'm meeting another human being. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't. Uh, I can't say that I visually don't see black or brown or yellow or whatever, or male, female, or. Th- but to me, every person is a person, and um, and I like to get along with people. I like to have fun with people, and uh, so I much rather get along with, with with people, and and um, you know. Most people, um, most people who are involved in, in uh, criminal conduct have, have issues that need to be addressed, and uh, a lot of them have been victimized themselves when they were young,
3: right.
2: and, they, and they, their emotional skin gets toughened, and over years with some of them that tough skin becomes a hard shell. But it's possible to get inside of it they try to keep people out because they don't want to be emotionally hurt again because they've been hurt so many times and it could be a a a little uh woman or it could be a big tough guy um Mm -hmm. but the same principle applies and in you know buddy's case the fellow who got the tattoos removed you know he uh although he was raised to hate uh people like me um You know, he he got to know me as a human being. We got to relate as human beings. Exactly. And and he realized that the hate and prejudice that he had been taught was wrong.
0: You know, I can can just picture your wife rolling her eyes when you tell her that you're representing another person for free.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it was, um, you know, with Buddy, uh, it was when I was representing... um, uh, I was in the, that case for five years before I began to represent Buddy, but I realized early on, I learned that Buddy was innocent, etc. And I remember coming out of a movie theater with my wife, having seen the movie um, In the Name of the Father, which was about some Irish fellows who had been wrongfully convicted. And I dramatically remember coming, walking out of the theater with my wife. We weren't talking. It was a great movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. And I just, just said to my wife, I said, you know, I've got to get Buddy out. She said, I know. I said, you know, I'm not going to get paid. She said, I know.
0: <laughs> oh. oh, that's priceless. Uh, Jerry, we're at the end of our hour. Uh, this, this has been really, uh, really a nice conversation. And those of you that are listening, uh, be sure and get this book, Leaning on the Arc. That's A-R-C, Leaning on the Arc, A Personal History of Criminal Defense by M. Gerald, G-E-R-A-L-D, Schwarzbach. Thank you again for joining the show. Uh, Once again, a shout-out to my sponsors, Jimmy and Rosemary Messis, publishers of PI Magazine. And we're here at the end. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and attorneys like Jerry Schwartzbach. It's P.I. Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
1: You've been listening to P.I. Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.